Thank you so much, Joe. Hi, everyone. How are you tonight? Good. I'm going to need more than that. Oh, they'll grow. Okay. How's everyone for real? Good? How was your week? Good. Do you guys miss Alan? Yeah. I want to say this, and I'm not just saying this because I'm here. I do believe that you guys have one of the best youth pastors I've ever met. Alan is a great guy, one of, someone I've gone to over the last few years, uh, such an amazing human. Because you all know him and because you all love him, I think I can say this. Uh, my favorite version of Alan is the current dating version of Alan. Like this is, this is peak Alan. Like this is like, I thought he was great and then, and now he's even better. Okay, cool. Um, I want to give you some warnings. Uh, English is my second language, so I might confuse a few words. Have grace with me, because I will flip-flop things around. Second, uh, I joke around a lot, but I'm going to tone it down for tonight. Um, and third, I fly on like that thin line of like, was he being sarcastic or was he serious? But I promise, I'm, my intentions are pure and they're good, and I'm really excited. I want to speak tonight on uh, King Solomon. I want to talk about Ecclesiastes. Uh, my idea is very simple. I'd like to speak a little bit about who King Solomon was. I'd like to run through just a gist of what Ecclesiastes looked like. And then I want to talk about something that I really felt like I was being nudged in uh, this week by the Lord. Um, something you need to know about me is the way I work is that I need to see the full picture. I'm a full picture person. Uh, I know that sounds deep, but in reality what that means is that I usually read the plot summary of a movie before I go see it. I, like, I just need to know how it ends. I need to know like when the surprises come. I enjoy it more that way. It's not that I can't enjoy it if I was surprised. I just like knowing it from start to finish. And so I want to run through Ecclesiastes very quickly just so we get a gist of what it's about. Uh, and then at the end, we're going we're gonna to land uh, speaking about... Um, why joy matters and why we should be seeking joy. And so I want to pray one more time before we start. Um, Father God, I just thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity, Lord. I thank you for this church, God. Um, man, I'm so thankful for Alan and his friendship and uh, his leadership over the last few years, someone who's spoken into my life, God. And so I pray that you'll be with him now. As he travels and he speaks, Lord, I pray that you're going to give him the words to minister to those people as well, God. I pray that you give me the words that uh, everyone needs to hear, Lord, that it'll be you speaking, not me, Lord. Um, I pray that you just uh, relay the message that we have to hear tonight, God. I pray that it comes out well, Lord, but even if it doesn't, Lord, you strike through to all of our hearts and our souls, Lord. We love you so much, and we're so thankful for who you are. In Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and you should have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, I want to read very briefly about Solomon, where, how he got to where he is. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6 to 9 says this. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern your great people? King Solomon uh, has a dream, and in this dream, the Lord asks him, what, what is it that you want? Um, 
And I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and I've been listening to a lot of pastors speak. And uh, what I've learned is that a lot of times they're more on the practical side of things. They'll give you 10 steps to be a good leader. They'll give you uh, five approaches to engage people. They'll tell you a three-point sermon on how to be uh, someone who can lead people well. And, and what I think we see here with Solomon is that there's such a humility in how he approaches this. God says, what do you want? And he doesn't ask for more money. He doesn't ask for a better following. He doesn't ask for more wealth or power. He says, Lord, would you give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern your great people? This guy is saying, Lord, would you give me the wisdom to lead your people? It's almost as if immediately he understood the mantle of responsibility that comes with leading and not just leading, but leading the people of God. And immediately after this, we see that Solomon is thrusted right into a moment where wisdom is needed. Two women enter a room. They're screaming. They have a baby. They're saying, she stole my baby. She stole my baby. He's like, what is going on? And it turns out that two women came in with a baby. One of them is claiming that it's her son. The other one is claiming that it's her son. Now, he's in a tough position because now he has to determine who is the mother of this child. Neither one of them wants to give up the kid. And so Solomon, in this moment of wisdom, says, let's cut the baby in half and give you half and give you half. Not the most logical way that someone would approach that conversation. Like, I, I have many questions when I get to heaven. My first will be to Solomon, what, why was that like the first initial response? Let's slice them up and we'll go halvesies and maybe that'll... No, but one of the women says, you know what? Don't do that. Please, like, don't, don't hurt the baby. You know what? Uh, let her have the baby. And King Solomon says, surely a mother would not want her son to get hurt. This is surely the mother of the child. And in that moment, you see that there is like a wisdom there that's not human. There's a wisdom that God gave him where he was able to look at a situation, step into it, and present a solution that worked out for well. And this is a recurring theme with Solomon. Even as you read on through King, First and Second Kings, in First Kings verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 29 to 34, it says this. You don't have to pull it, but this is what it says. God gave Solomon wisdom and a great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezrite, wiser than... Heman, Kalkul, and Darda, which will be the name of my three sons, uh, and his fame spread to the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came out to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. This is a man who is wise. This is a man uh, who has influenced a man who I believe people liked, a man that people wanted to hear what he had to say, a man that could draw a crowd. And so when, when you know this about Solomon and then you figure out that he wrote Ecclesiastes, uh, my first time diving into Ecclesiastes, I'm thinking, man, this is going to be an amazing book. There's going to be a lot of cool practical wisdom. There's going to be a lot of really good moments. It's going to be written in a way that, that sounds good, that works well, that is very, uh, uh, what's the word, what's the word, very uh, uh, joyful. And then you open Ecclesiastes and it sort of all just hits you like a brick wall. Like Ecclesiastes is not the happiest book of the Bible. Like Ecclesiastes is about as real as it gets. And for someone like myself who grew up in church, like many of you have, I think we've all been trained to know when someone is telling you the truth and when someone is making it sound better than it is. What I love about Ecclesiastes is that King Solomon wastes no time in telling you how it is. He goes, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. This is what life looks like, this isn't what life looks like. There's no beating around the bush. And so for me, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible. And as you kick into Ecclesiastes, right out of the gate, you can tell that the mood is a little bit different. 
Uh, verses 9 to 11 in chapter 1 says this. What has been is what, what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So he's saying everything that has happened and everything that will happen will fade away. All of the things that have happened in the past are going to happen again, and all of the things that happened in the past are going to happen again in the future. Life is a recurring cycle of things that happen over and over and over again. And I'm just like, bro, you're speaking to my heart. Because this is how I feel sometimes. In my 24 years of life, I'm getting to a point where I'm saying, man, life sometimes just feels like it's a recurring thing. And I grew up in a church and, that I really loved and enjoyed, but I've also uh, been to places where the gospel is not so much about uh, God's goodness through the highs and the lows, but just that when you walk into a relationship with Jesus, everything will be perfect and peachy and great. Uh, and then to hear something like this is so refreshing. He says everything, it, it, it already happened, it's going to happen again. He goes on and continues to say in verse 14, I have seen everything that is under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Uh, essentially, he saying nothing really matters. Like nothing matters. It's like chasing wind. You can put all your energy into it. You can run as fast as you can, but you're never going to catch it. This is what life looks like. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, like what happened to the guy who was like, let's slice a baby in half? Because that's, I liked him much more than this guy. And then we get into chapter two and suddenly things start to make sense. In chapter 2, he goes off on this long tangent, and I would like to read all of this from verses 1 to 11. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water will flow to the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born into my house. I also had a great possession of herds and flocks, more than any who have been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpass all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil that I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained after the sun, under the sun. If you read this for what it is and you think about today, King Solomon seemed to have had everything. Like literally everything that you can imagine this man had. And he says that he did not keep whatever his eyes desired. So this man had the wine, he had the parties, he had the house, he had the resources, he had the finances, he had the people, he had the workers, he had the women. This guy's living what I would consider to be a modern day and age of someone with a lot of wealth today. Everything they want, they have. They have the nicest cars. They have the biggest homes. They throw the best parties. They have the best life, the biggest Instagram following. Everyone looks and says, man, I wish I could have what they have. But the reality is that Solomon has everything, and yet he ends by saying there was nothing to be gained from this. 
It's like after his whole life, after working and, and, and doing and having fun and enjoying, he says, all that I did, all the wine, all the women, all, all the fun, all, all the parties, all the celebrations, none of it mattered. And you're reading this and I'm being honest, like it doesn't get happier. Like you're thinking, are you telling me that nothing I'm going to work towards in my life will bring me happy? And I feel like Solomon is saying, no. Like nothing on this earth will bring you the happiness that you're seeking. You're going to work your whole life. You're going to get whatever you think you want. You're going to throw the best parties. You're going to try all the wine. You're going to have all the girls. And and you're going to get to the end of your life and realize that none of it sustained you. None of it fulfilled you. None of it kept you happy for longer than a few moments. This is Solomon. He's giving us an insight as to what life looks like. And the rest of the book is him just giving wisdom over wisdom over wisdom. In chapter 3, he talks about how there's a time for everything. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck, a time to kill and a time to heal. He goes over and over and over saying how there are seasons in life. There's times for rejoicing, times for mourning. He continues on speaking about how eternity is placed on our hearts, how there's a void inside of us that longs for eternity. I mean, the cool thing about this is that a lot of the things that you read into in Ecclesiastes, you realize that Jesus would eventually be the fulfillment for. So there's, there is an eternity in the heart of man. But, but what we know is that there's an eternity that is in our hearts that we're longing for, but the solution is Jesus. And what we mean him, that void is filled. But for a lot of other people, there's a void there that longs for something and they plug it in with other things only to realize that there is nothing that can fill the Jesus-sized hole in your soul. It is a very big hole and there's nothing nearly as big. And even if you block it off for a second, it's still gonna fall and things are still gonna leak through. Jesus is the only thing that fills that void. He goes on by saying something super encouraging. He says, we all die and return to dust. That's great. He says, both men and animals will die, return to dust. He says, we die the same way that the beasts do. I love this part. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So for some of us who have dogs and we're thinking we might see them in heaven, good news. He's saying, who knows whether they go up or down. For those of us who have cats, assured they're not getting into heaven. I don't make the rules. It's somewhere in Leviticus. Just dig through it. Cats are not of the Lord. They're like snakes. (laughs) Chapter four, the world is evil. Great chapter, phenomenal chapter. The world is an evil place. He says in chapter four, again, I saw all the oppression that was done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He's saying, man, the world is so evil that I hate and I feel bad for those who are living in it because they have to experience it. It's better that you'd be dead because you wouldn't have to experience it. But better even yet that you were never even born so you wouldn't have to know the evil of this world. And then he follows that up in chapter four, talking about how because of how evil the world is, it's better to just do life together. It's good to have a community. He says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." I'm the marketing director for Chick-fil-A in my town. So I do uh, pastor work and I do that. Uh, and, and what I've learned is that people who go into Chick-fil-A like, are not like the happiest people. 
Um, and in multiple experiences, my wife as a witness, I've almost gotten run over by people in the drive-thru. People have wanted to fight me. They're like, I'm going to get out of the car. And, and so let me tell you, uh, I'm, I'm a big person, right, like tall, but I'm kind of skinny, and this jacket makes me look much more muscular than I actually am. Uh, like, I'm not really that big, you know, uh, but I have a coworker named Razul, and Razul is like a big human. And I remember one instance, the guy goes, man, I'm going to get out of my car. And I said, sir, don't you dare, not in authority, more out of fear. Like, just don't do it. And Razul comes around like, hey, what's the problem? And man, that guy got into his car so quick. He was like, no problem, sir. We were just conversing. And I was like, yeah, get him, Razul. Why? Because it's easier when we're in community. Community protects. Community keeps you accountable. Community helps you in the moments where there is struggle. You have backup. You have support. This is why youth group and church is essential to Christian faith, because we're not meant to go on life alone, especially in such an evil world. Solomon says, hey, find people and live with people. Chapter 5, he says, don't mess with God. Like, this is phenomenal. The the first verse of this chapter is enough. Uh, He says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Like, be careful when you do that. As a homeowner, that is like my attitude when someone comes in with dirty shoes. I'm like, watch your feet before you step into here. But with Solomon, it's him saying, man, know who you are speaking to when you talk to God. He says, don't overpromise and then underperform. Don't don't say you're going to do something, don't do it. Maybe do that with man, but not with God. Like, this is God that we're speaking of. Don't, don't do that with him. And he keeps on discussing about how, how as we go, we, we're going to uh, look at God and he is our God. But I thought something that was really interesting is he talks about the fear of God and how we worship God and then immediately goes into finances, talking about the vanity of wealth and honor as if there are people who idolize and worship money. I don't know any of those people, but I'm sure they exist somewhere. In verse 10, he says, those who love money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. So he says, if you're chasing after money and wealth, you're never going to be happy. You're going to keep chasing for more. You're going to set a goal. You're going to reach it. You're going to set a higher goal. You're going to reach it. You're going to spend the rest of your life seeking after something that you will never obtain. In verse 11, he says, when the goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He says, the more you have, the more people now want from you. And you're going to see it, but it's just going to disappear. And then he talks about how in chapter, in verse 12, that sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but full, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So he's saying, like, it's good for us to work. It's good for us to labor. When you work for what you get, you feel fulfilled. You, you sleep well. But those who have everything go to sleep, and they're never fulfilled. There's always a longing for more. Chapter 6, another super encouraging one. The worst is to have but not be able to enjoy. He talks in verse 1, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous, a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he is. Man, I know so many people who, who live their life trying to, to get to a higher level, trying to earn more, trying uh, to make more, and the more they make, the more they want. The more they have, the more they desire. They have the big house, but now they want the bigger house. They have the nice car, now they want the nicer car. They have all these amazing things that God has placed in front of them, but they can't enjoy them because they're so focused on what's next. I have to get the next thing. And it's like, I would gladly take your spot and be so happy where you are. 
you don't like your BMW because you want something nicer, I'll take it. Like, please, your seven-bedroom house with four bathrooms is too small. It's perfect for me. Your bank account only has $200,000. That's all I need forever. Like, please, I'm thrifty. Do you know how bad it is to live your whole life having but never being able to enjoy it, getting to the end of your life, realizing how much God has given you and saying you weren't able to enjoy any of it because you were so busy trying to get what's next? Like, this is a horrible thing, and he speaks about it. In chapter 7, he talks about how a good name is better than riches. When he means a good name, he means what people say about you, what they think about you, not your actual name, because that's very subjective. There are some really bad names, like Mordecai. Like, you don't name your kid that. Or Judas, very unpopular. Jezebel, also not one that you want to do. Mark those off your list. But it's what people think about you that matters. What people will say about you when you're done, when you're getting buried, that's what means the most. He says that's worth more than riches. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, a good name is better than the precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of birth, what people will say about you when you leave this earth is so important. Man, the legacy that you leave behind is so important. What you do for the kingdom of God is so important. The day that you pass, there's a celebration because you go in to see God in heaven. But man, there's going to be people who are going to remember your life either as someone who did much for the kingdom or someone who didn't. We have an obligation to live towards that last day on earth, to appreciate every day that God has given us, but know that until he takes me, there is work to be done. And he continues in chapter 7, just throwing out like tweetable moment after tweetable moment. Like if you're ever just stuck and don't know what to do, you download an app, stick one of these fonts on a black background and post it on your Instagram story. People love that sort of stuff. It's phenomenal. He says in, in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. What matters in life is how you end, not how you start. I've seen many people start ministries that die after a few months because they lose interest. I've seen people start projects that die down after a few months because they lose interest. I'm part of a couple that started a blog a few months ago and we lost interest. And we're going to try again, I promise, babe, at some point. But for right now, if people looked at the legacy of our blog, they'd say, well, they just gave up. It's important how you finish. It's not about starting. It's not about adding 40 things to your to-do list if you only finish one. What's important is how you end things. Verse 10, another one. Say not, why are the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Man, when you are, when you are comparing to the past, what you believe are the better days, you lose sight of reality. And we believe that with Jesus, the best is yet to come, if not here on earth, when we get to heaven. We look onwards to that day, that even if life here is bad, the promise is that we will have an eternity with him. In chapter eight, man, this guy just throws like, fire in this one. He talks about how those who scheme will never experience a good and full life, that those who live in sin, we see them, we see them do well for themselves, but don't never experience the fullness of life. In verses 14 and 15, he talks about how sometimes good things happen to bad people, and sometimes bad things happen to good people, and that's just how life works. Verses 16 and 17, he talks about how we are never going to fully figure out God. I like the way he puts it. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, and how neither day nor night do one eye see sleep, then I saw all the work of the Lord that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However, much man may toil and seek, and he will not find it. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it. 
I like the commentary that someone wrote for this. They said that if you were to live your whole life awake, if you did not lose hours on sleep, if you did not lose hours on work, if you lived your whole life just aware and seeking after God, you would still come nowhere close to figuring out the fullness of who he is. Never. Even when we get into eternity, we will never experience the fullness, we'll never comprehend the amazing fullness of who he is. In chapter nine, it says, misfortune finds us all. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the verse that really stuck out to me, it says, for man does not know his time. It's like a fish that are taken in an evil net and birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You're having a good day. You're having a good season. Life's going well. And all of a sudden, misfortune comes. Something goes wrong. Someone gets sick. Something goes bad at home. You lose your job. Something. This happens to us all, whether you're good or whether you're bad. Chapter 10. He talks about how a little bad affects good, how a little foolishness will affect you. Uh, bad, and, and, and when I mean bad, I mean sin and all those things. Works a lot like gravity. Sin will pull you down a lot faster than you'll be able to pick yourself up. Like it weighs on you heavy. And so even the smallest amount of sin in your life will take someone who's walking along the very uh, tight and narrow path and it will sway them to the left or to the right. So he's saying, keep away from the bad. In chapter 11, he says, combine your work with wonder. He talks about the trees and he says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of the God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand for you do not know which, prosper, which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. He's saying, sure, you can wonder at how trees grow. Sure, you can be amazed by those things, but there's a little bit of work required sometimes. You have to plant the seed. A lot of us are waiting and wondering, how's God gonna figure this one out? How's God gonna solve this? And I believe that there's a lot of instances when you exhaust your resources, the only option is to wait and wonder. But I've heard many times people say, man, I really want God to use me to reach people. And they're wondering when the opportunity will present themselves. Meanwhile, they go to a school full of people who don't know who Jesus is. They don't wanna put in the work, but they're wondering how God's gonna use them. That's a relationship that we have. We can wonder at what God wants to do, but there is a little bit of work that may be required. And chapter 12, man, chapter 12 is the ender of this all. And verses 13 and 14 says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I like how in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, he speaks a lot about what he achieves in life, a lot about the work, a lot about uh, the wine, the parties, and the success, and, and the fame, and, and all the things he gathered. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, at the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the man who is a done everything, who's experienced everything, who has had everything. Uh, he's never lacked, he's never desired. And at the end of his life, he's saying the only thing that matters is fearing God and keeping his commandment. All of the other things we work towards under the sun, the jobs, the finances, the things we're trying to buy, they're good, it's not bad to do that, but at the end of life, it, it, it just doesn't matter. All of those things will be left to someone else. All of those things will be thrown away. You can't bring them with you, so why are we investing so much time in those things? And what struck out to me the most is when I'm reading this, I'm struggling because, I mean, 
I grew up my whole life hearing the expression that, uh, you know, more money won't bring you happiness or uh, more influence won't bring you happiness or a better career won't bring you happiness or uh, a better spouse won't bring you happiness or a better house won't bring you happiness. And being honest, I really think that that person has no idea what they're talking about. Um, you know why? Because like, if I had more money in my bank account, I would be so happy right now. For a lot of us, if we had a better living situation at home, we'd be much happier right now. For a lot of us, if we had more friends, we'd be much happier right now. If we were more popular, we'd be much happier right now. If we had more things that we desired, we'd be much happier right now. But, but the problem with happiness is that it's cheap and it's fragile and it does not sustain you. Happiness is a quick fix to a big problem. You want to have more money? Sure, that'll fix a lot of your problems. We know when we got married, we got a check from my former bosses. Man, and they have deep wallets. And let me tell you, we were so happy because you have debt and now the debt disappears. But once the money ran out, we were still anxious about our future. We were still worried about things that we had to do. We still weren't sure where God wanted us. Happiness comes in for a moment, makes you feel good, but the problem is that happiness fades. And talk about, this is a guy who's experienced everything. So he's saying, whatever you're trying to use to mask what you're feeling, I promise you it won't work. You want to hide it with parties? Do it. At the end of the life, it didn't matter. You want to hide it with women? Do it. At the end of your life, it won't matter. You want to hide it with status? Do it. At the end of your life, it won't matter. This is a guy who's experienced everything, who's gone and, and done whatever he wanted to do, and what he's closing out, his whole book is saying, nothing that I worked for in my whole life brought me any happiness here on earth. And the thing is, when we read this, we read this more as like a suggestion. Like, hey, you know what, guys? Like, it just, it wasn't good. Maybe don't try it. Do something else. But we have to read this as if it's someone who's screaming at us and shouting at us. When someone tells you, don't stick your hand in the fire, you're going to get burnt. You're not going to stick your hand in the fire and get burnt. If someone says, don't jump off of a bridge, you'll break your ankles. You're not going to jump off a bridge and break your ankles. But yet we hear a guy who's struggling, who's suffering, who, who has seen everything in life, who has had everything he's ever desired, and he is pleading with us, I believe, and he's saying, nothing that you do here on earth will bring you happiness. Take it from someone who's done everything. It is empty. It is void. It will not sustain you. You will get to the end of your life, and you'll realize the only thing that mattered was fearing God and following his commandments. And yet we read this and we go, wow, that's crazy. And we forget about it by Monday. And we keep chasing after all the cheap things. The problem is that we live in a world that really tries to sell you on happiness. If you have more, you'll be happy. If you do more, you'll be happy. If you're busy, you'll be happier. If you post more, you'll be happier. But I don't believe that happiness is as important as joy is. Why? Because happiness is, is temporary, but joy is eternal. Happiness will not fulfill you, but joy will fulfill you eternally. Happiness is driven externally. Joy is driven internally. Man, happiness for me is buying a new pair of shoes. Like, I love shoes. It is so bad. When you walk into our home and you see the footwear collection, you say, man, your, your wife has an issue. And I go, she does. She for sure has an issue. We're praying for her but they're my shoes and they're everywhere. You know what happiness is? Pulling a fresh pair of shoes out of a box, smelling the leather, thanking God for the cow that gave his life so that I could look good. 
But you know what's crazy? I wear it and I'm happy and I'm enjoying it. Uh, and then I drop water on it and that happiness disappeared. I had a friend who bought me uh, my wedding boots. These were boots that I, I, I'd been wanting for a long time. This dude makes money. I don't make money. So he's like, man, I want to bless you. I was like, I love you. And I wore them to church one day because I had to break them in. I spilled coffee on them. And they were suede. Yeah, you see what I mean? Like, and so, and so imagine, I am walking into church like, this is a good day. I am happy. This is great. The coffee spilled, and it was over. And it's really funny, but the reality is that that's life. Like, happiness goes away like this. You can come home. You had a great day at school. You did good on your test. You, you went to your job. You had a great day. You come home. You get into one argument with your parents, and happiness is gone. You're doing well in life, you're feeling confident, you feel like God's speaking to you, one of your friends says something bad about you and your happiness is gone. Happiness is cheap and it does not last. But the joy of the Lord, oh man, that lasts forever. Man, the joy of the Lord will sustain you until you get to heaven and then some. And when I'm thinking about this, I'm trying to think, well, if he's saying that nothing that he did will sustain you, if he's saying that nothing of this will bring me happiness, if he's saying that the only thing that matters is fearing God and keeping his commands, my next question is, where do I start? What commands do I start keeping? Because there's, there's a lot of them. And sure, there are some civil ones, there are some ceremonial ones that are some that are technically for a specific group of people. But as someone who wants to experience this joy, I ask God, God, tell me where to start so I can begin. Point me in the right direction. What do I have to do to experience this joy? Because I've tried the happiness route and it doesn't last long. It doesn't do well for me. It disappears. I want this genuine joy. And I believe that God pushed me into a part of the Bible that I read over and over and over again. But I stored in the back of my head and I forgot about until this moment. And that's in Matthew chapter 22. Verses 36 to 40, when Jesus is speaking and someone asks him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Do you want to know how to find happiness in life? Keep chasing your career. Keep growing your Instagram profile. Keep dressing well. Keep networking. But do you want to know how to find joy? Love God and love his people. It's all you have to do. You have to commit your life to loving God on all of his people. And when you do that and when you pursue that, you know what happens? Your life starts to change. Take it from someone who's experienced it from both accounts. We've been doing ministry for a few years now and it's been super cool and I remember going at it my way and I remember trying to grow the ministry numerically and I remember trying to post the cooler things and I remember trying to do all these cool things so that we would grow and we'd have a cool name and I'd have a greater Instagram following and you know what the Lord did? He showed me that the more I worked and the more I strived and the more I tried to accomplish these things, the sadder I got. The more I compared myself to people, the more I figured out that the followers didn't do anything, the more I figured out that other ministries were just going to do better than us, not because of what we're doing, but just that's how God graced them in certain areas. And I remember being like, you know what, God, I just don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to do ministry for the sake of followers. I, wanna, I don't want to do ministry for the sake of a reputation. And you know what God did that's super cool in that moment? He took our ministry that was up here and he brought it down here. We went from like 130 people to like 30 people, like that. We went from having three services a week, a month, 
to doing two services a month, to not having people show up to that, to having one service a month and one hangout. He took me as a person and he brought my image down here and then he brought it down here and then he humbled me down here and then he brought me down here. And he said, now what I want you to do is focus on loving me and loving my people. And I said, sure. And when my focus changed from trying to find happiness in my life and it shifted into loving God and his people, the ministry began to grow surely but slowly. It's not where it was, but it's getting there. It's growing. Our community group got more consistent, got more faithful. We don't have as many people. We have a committed group of people. I lost out on a lot of opportunities to speak because our services got cut short, but God's been opening up doors to speak outside of our services more and more to a point where I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, I'm a little overwhelmed right now because like I said, Lord, I'm only gonna speak once a month. And he's like, here you go. And now I'm just like, I can't do this. This is too much. I'm just joking. I love it. It's great. It's an honor. But what I'm saying is if you seek God and his things first, everything else will come after. Everything else will come naturally. And you know what's better? Not only will the things come naturally, not only when you seek God for what he wants, like, like Solomon did when he said, hey, show me how to lead your people and give me the wisdom. And God said, because you asked for this, I will give you the power and the influence and the riches. When you seek God and seek him first and make it a priority in your life to love him and his people, he will give you the desires of your heart in due time. So don't waste time on happiness. Spend time pursuing joy. Don't waste time on all the things that the world promises but can't deliver on. Spend time loving God and loving people. And I will end it with this. When people ask if joy is as good as it sounds, when I have friends who are non-believers and say, hey, what's the whole deal on joy? Is it just a better version of happiness? I'm just like, not even remotely. This is the verse that I always bring them back to. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay down aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to put it this way. If the joy that was set before Jesus was enough to get him through the cross, to get him through the shame, to get him to die for me and you, then I promise you that the joy that is set before us is more than good enough to get us through whatever life may bring. The heartbreak, the heartache, the struggles, the stresses of life of teenager years, especially you guys have it rough. I know. Man, the joy that is set before us in Christ Jesus and the promise of heaven Oh man, it is more than enough to get us through whatever life may bring. And so I want to just end it with this, just two very quick questions. Um, why wouldn't we listen from the wisdom Solomon presents? Why would we keep trying to chase the things that don't sustain us? If we believe that the Bible is the word of God, if we believe that it is, it is God inspired, if we do believe that it is living and alive today, then we should take opportunities when we have these heroes of faith extending their wisdom to us and we should take those lessons and write them on our hearts. We should live from their mistakes. The Bible does two things very well. It teaches you what to do and it teaches you what not to do. This is one of those instances where it's don't do this. And second, and this is more of a personal question, and I would say, uh, if you have a moment this week, pray about this. What are you trying to fill the voids in your life with? I think all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, have some sort of void. 
There's something that we're trying to fill. And the answer to all of these voids is Jesus. The answer to the singleness and the loneliness is Jesus. The answer, in my case, to the anxiety and the fear of the future is Jesus. The answer to everything that we work through in life is Jesus. So let's stop trying to plug it in with anything else. And let's go to the one source that is open and willing to fix everything that could be wrong in our life, Jesus himself. I want to close this out in prayer. And Joe, you can come up to close this down.